Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm thrilled to be here with my friend, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, the host of the most dangerous Bible podcast, The Good Faith Effort. Uh, he is a brilliant scholar, and he has also done us the service of being a public-facing uh, Twitterati. Um, Twitteratus. He publishes uh, threads, long threads called Why Read the Bible in Hebrew that have gone viral many times, and it's always a thrill to get to talk theology and much else. Welcome, Ari. I'm so honored to be here. Holy cow, I'm a huge fan. So I love the Bible. I love reading it in, in Hebrew. I call it the Torah, as do you. Um, what is the theological reason for reading the Torah in the original? It gets to a larger question of what is Hebrew. So the rabbinic sobriquet for the language is uh, Lashon HaKodesh, which means the language of the holy, or uh, potentially the sacred tongue. And the age-old question, which the you know, Jewish intellectual tradition has debated is, uh, you know, realism versus positivism in some sense, which is, was the, the Bible delivered in Hebrew because Hebrew is sacred or is Hebrew sacred, uh, because the Bible sacralized it, the Bible was given in that language. And so by default, it's, it's sacred. And my firm commitment is that I don't know the answer. And therefore, um, my assumption is that it's actually a little bit of both. And even if you could definitively determine which it is, uh, the mysterious nature of, of existence makes it so that one bleeds into the other. And so I think that to the extent that generations upon generations, I mean, untold numbers of people have hallowed not just the content and values of the Bible, but actually the study of its text through unimaginable adversity, through times of inexplicable joy, and through really the, just the gamut of every possible human emotion and experience, it seems to me that the language in which all of this is expressed uh, and which determines so much of its flavor, so much of its meaning, so much of its nuance, actually is holy in some sense, whether it was holy from the very first minute, whether it was hallowed by, by, by time, either way, the language is, is in some way just deeply sacred. And so being able to, to take the language into your hands, almost like a, uh, almost like a holy object and turn it around and turn it around for everything is in it, as the rabbis would have said, that's a, a privilege. Mm. That deeply resonated with me. I was thinking about Christianity and Islam as foils on this theological question because in Islam, to my understanding, the Quran, like the Torah, is more holy in the original, let's just say. Um, I would maybe go further with Islam, although I'm not an expert there, and say that the reason why the Quran is considered holier in Arabic than, let's say, in English is because you are closer to God's own uh, native language when reading the Quran, like you are trying to emulate divine speech while studying it. And so, um, you know, in Judaism, we, we have people who lane and do uh, 
cantillation, but if they make a mistake, it's not the biggest deal in the world. Just redo it. Whereas I think when you're reciting the Quran, you're trying to speak the Quran as if channeling God's voice. And so the stakes are much higher. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, we have Christianity where um, very few people who call themselves believing Christians value, let's say, reading Koine Greek um, or learning Aramaic because that was the language that Jesus and his disciples spoke. The King James will do. And um, the way in which you talked about the commentary tradition as having a kind of holiness, you could argue that Christianity maintains that view, but just um, passes it on to the vernacular. So it's the, the language of faith that matters rather than the language of scripture. I have, I used to have this like funny experience whenever I would talk and speak in front of audiences uh, that didn't have access to Hebrew. And typically it would be audiences that were not Jewish, right? So, um, you know, I remember speaking in front of, uh, of an audience of, of young, younger, you know, Christian young men and women and talking about the Hebrew Bible and, and essentially doing like a live wire the Bible in Hebrew thread. And I, in order to illustrate a point, we got up to a text and I said, can someone read this verse? And there were these sort of blank stares in front of me. And I said, come on, anyone want to go? And finally, someone goes, well, which translation? I'm like, I don't know. Who cares? It's You're reading it in English, right? Like, just whatever. Pick whichever translation. I was sort of very dismissive of the translational effort. And since then, uh, I have come to be much more appreciative and also, I think, much more sort of respectful in a mature way of the sacredness of translation itself. And not only because, you know, you could make the same hallowed by experience argument there, like you could say, you know, the story of the King James translation is such a is such an extraordinary one, right? The, the King James Bible is, I think someone once said of the King James that it's the only work of art ever produced by committee. And the the effort to do it was was both by that time still still novel, but it, but the English, the the trans, the the effort to translate the Hebrew Bible into into English, and you know the the Greek Bible as well into English, had gone through enough iterations in its in the short history of that project that the King James Bible actually had something very novel to say about critiquing that tradition. At the same time, the political uh, uh, point of the King James translation was to stamp out uh some of the uh, some of the egalitarian explicit egalitarian aims of the geneva bible and some of the prior translation uh translational efforts and king james himself probably the most learned man ever to sit a throne in europe uh was very keen on creating scholarly or or on marshalling scholarly weight behind the idea that the that the you know, the Bible itself endorses monarchy, particularly the flavor of monarchy that that he was fond of. And then for something, for a project so explicitly uh, anti-liberty like that to then become uh, the language of the American political experiment and it's, and it's, you know, both aspirations towards and struggles with liberty is just such an amazing thing that, that could only be providential. But even beyond that hallowed by experience argument, there is implicit with not implicit explicit within the bible itself the idea that making 
the Bible understandable to an audience of people who might not otherwise have access to it is itself the point of the Bible. So there's a there's a a wonderful verse uh, 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 in the Bible itself, which dis- in which the Bible kind of reflects, uh, uh, or 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 in which God through Moses reflects upon the very purpose of this whole biblical project itself. And in Hebrew says, uh, for this is your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the nations. The whole point of this project is not to be some sort of, uh, you know, esoteric Gnostic endeavor, but rather to be something with civic purpose uh, with 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 public consequence, and so making uh, making God's communication to the people of Israel at Sinai and subsequently um, comprehensible and and ennobling to the wider human public and to the various you know nations among the family of nations is a deeply righteous task. And so translation, therefore, takes on a sacredness of its own. It's not merely instrumental. Mm. Translation as communication takes on a sanctity of its own, though I think the question still stands around the specificity of the translation and how intrinsic, like if you want to get all brisk about it, like is it on the the chefza or the gavra, right, of the translation? How much does the does the sanctity derive from let's say the artisanal craft of translation versus did it achieve what it was set out to do, you know, to deliver a message in a different medium. Um, very much on my mind, uh, both because we, we both podcast, we both do Twitter threads. I think we are both interested in translating Jewish thought to non-Jewish audience and an American context. And so translation um, is very, I mean, I, I probably, Probably every translator feels this, I wouldn't say dual loyalty, but almost a confusion about which is even the native thing. Maybe you don't feel that as much as I do. I'm not sure. But like, I'm not even sure I'm going from, let's say, Judaism to other as so much as it is a kind of bilingual, you know, a bilingualism in which both languages are quite fragmented and I'm not really native or fluent in either, like a pigeon pigeon third language or something right this goes the meme the third that third something that's unidentifiable there's a reason why uh the rabbinic tradition uh understands the translational project as both an opportunity and a crisis and you have various traditions that that speak to both so uh in particular uh rabbinic tradition and the Jewish intellectual tradition in general is fascinated by uh, what we now call the Septuagint, which for the listeners out there, you know, Septuaginta just means 70 and relates to the, to the, the origin story of the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, uh, which according to the story was done by 70 translators who in some versions are sequestered in different rooms and have to come up with the same translation. Otherwise, we're just sort of uh, marshaled together by uh, by King Ptolemy uh, so that they could contribute duly to the Library of Alexandria or whatever the case may be. And uh, rabbinic tradition both regards that as as 
an opportunity for celebration and enlightenment, but also as something to be mourned. And I think it's precisely for that reason. Translation is both, uh, is both, uh, gives you a sense both of, of emerging into a wider world and bringing, bringing a gift to, to people who so desperately need it and also abandoning your home. And for that reason, it's kind of frightening. <laughs> mm. I love the the story in the Gemara and also Josephus of the 70 translators who are uh, sequestered and all come up magically, or, you know, I guess we'd say by divine inspiration with the same translation. And I don't know if this is the intended interpretation of, of this passage, but I'll, I'll offer mine and, and see what you think. So the number 70 has a kind of gravitas in Jewish tradition. There are 70 nations, 70 languages. Um, and crucially from a more, I guess, medieval point of view, there are 70 faces of Torah. So 70 represents diversity and multiplicity and in in a sense, infinity, like the infinite set of human potential ways of looking at the blackbird, of looking at the Torah and seeing something different in it based in your individual circumstance, your historical circumstance, your cultural thrownness. And so um, the thing, the reason why we're mourning the translation is less because it's a translation and actually because the 70 came to uniformity. We, we want one language to shatter into 70 different ones. We want one Torah to um, refract through 70 different lenses. What we don't want is 70 distinct people to form groupthink and consensus and say this is the correct interpretation, which one could argue is the leveling down that translation achieves because when you don't have an original, you can't have machloket over the interpretation. Instead, you have to take as decreed like the translation itself, which is an interpretation. So I know I'm, I'm going kind of fast through this, but in, we have... Um, I love that. That's so good. I'd never considered that. That's such a... That's such a... That's such a Zohar at Kinsey and reading, and I love it. <laughs> we have we have written Torah versus oral Torah, or, or written Torah and oral Torah as a distinction. And while that distinction is itself, you know, a very complicated one, and one I'd love to get your thoughts on pursuant to this conversation, um, it feels like translation risks conflating that distinction and sort of taking something that is oral and elevating it to the st- status of the written. So. Commentary and interpretation are great, provided we recognize that they're commentary and interpretation. But once you elevate it to the status of word of God or original scripture, Torah Shebikhtav, that's when things become sort of too rigid. And then the tradition can actually evolve through interpretive communities because you've sort of decided that this is the the fixed view of tradition. This reminds me of a phenomenon documented in uh, the Jewish intellectual tradition that to the best of my knowledge doesn't doesn't appear in sort of the other uh, major religious traditions, although there are analogous concepts, but the particular metaphor is 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 I think unique. And that is, and well the background for it is that uh, the Jewish tradition considers prophecy of by which I mean, you know, God, calling a person who then can speak by saying in Hebrew, you know, ko amar Hashem, thus saith the Lord, uh, you know, a Jeremiah, an Ezekiel, uh, a Habakkuk, etc. Prophecy is over. 
and there are no more prophets. And the cessation of prophecy took place, you know, sometime during the Persian period. Okay, that's the assumption of the Jewish tradition. Now, that said, uh, God still finds ways to communicate with his people, sometimes through experience, sometimes through history, uh, and sometimes through miracles. Uh, but the dominant and 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 sort of most explicit manner in which rabbinic tradition imagines uh, or 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 imagines is the wrong word, but describes God uh, communicating with human beings is through what's called a botkol, um, or I guess as I'll just I'm, I'll be the Ashkenazi that I am a botkol, right? Exactly. <laughs> I just a few a few a few weekends ago I I prayed in a in a Yemenite minion, so I. You know a bath call, I guess, but but a but a bath call, and a bath call uh, literally mean very literally means uh, the daughter of a voice or the daughter of the voice. But it's not exactly clear what that metaphor means. But if you trace its uh, its usages to the earliest strata of rabbinic literature, where it's not referring to that phenomenon of God, sort of, sort of a voice emerging that in some way communicate that in some way comes from God, speaks in God's voice, but isn't pro- isn't prophetic. So if you kind of go back to the earliest strands of, of Jewish writing that use that term, baskol, even to describe different things, and some of which is outside of rabbinic literature, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll find that term. What it means, or what it seems to mean, uh, when it's not being used to describe something pseudo-prophetic, is it just means an echo. And the classic case that it describes is, let's say... Um, uh, let's say uh, that you have a woman whose husband has either suffered an accident or gone on a long journey, and uh, and she hears a rumor that he's died, and so that would trigger that would trigger her ability to remarry, right? Because the marriage would be se- the marriage would be severed by death. Uh, but let's so in order to to sever a marriage, you need proof right so you need someone you need uh, vi- uh, valid witness testimony or something along those lines so let's say uh the case goes that uh somebody uh, or the woman herself is standing in a canyon and she hears echoing through the walls of the canyon uh somebody saying your husband is dead uh she doesn't hear it from the person himself but she hears an echo of the person saying it is that enough to validate uh, to validate the divorce, right? To validate his death and therefore uh, enable her to remarry, and that to me is exactly what the metaphor of a prof- you know pseudo prophetic baskol is going is going for, which is you're not hearing God, you're hearing the reverberations of God's speech, you're hearing the echo of God's voice through the canyon, and the very question that we have to ask is the same question uh, that the perspective widow has to ask which is am i am i hearing the voice correctly have i interpreted it properly can i be sure it's coming from from the person or being to whom i've attributed it and there's there's that uncertainty about it that that makes it so delicious and so and, and so and so frightening and potent at the exact same time like we can't be sure uh we know what what this voice is and there's a reason why the the grand dispute about the potency of a baskol 
uh, in rabbinic literature is precisely whether you can use it to decide questions as opposed to just, you know, prompt inspiration. Can you use it to, can, can you use it to, to end a conversation as opposed to just beginning a conversation? And to me, that is precisely, uh, uh, what, what interpretation, uh, what interpretation gives us. It gives us the ability to open new avenues of inquiry and to begin conversations. And you're right in that it's a, it, it is, it is much more, uh, upsetting to me or, or, or just more fundamentally boring to me when interpretation becomes a conversation ender. I recognize, of course, and so does anybody who belongs to a robust religious community that you do need to have some conversation enders because you need to be able to practice, right? You need to just be able to make decisions, but th those always seem to me like a shame rather than, uh, rather than, uh, something glorious. Mm. That was a rich, riff there. There was a lot in it. So I want to pick up on the theological metaphor of the original Boskol um, text, the one in which it's just a potential Aguna, a, a woman in distress, um, not sure if her husband has died or not, and ask if the text is also about us moving on from God in some way. Are we the, are we the Aguna as a people? And is the text suggesting that in fact it is time to move on? So, ironically enough, the bot, the the message of the bot call, the message of the voiceling, is don't wait for God to come back, carry on, be a humanist now. Um, and so it pairs with the other more famous uh, dispute in which we're arguing over whether the bot call can be used in a legal context. Basically, saying. Um, don't rely on God for all intents and purposes. But then ironically enough, we are relying on God to substantiate that point. So that's a bit of a uh, performative contradiction, which I think is a nice little wink. And the second um, thought I had on this, which is maybe more on the political or sociological plane is it feels like if the origin of the bot call is to resolve a situation of intense human need, does that allow for a Straussian interpretation whereby, no, God is very much alive. Prophecy is very much alive. Um, but say what you need to, to help this widow out. And it's the right thing to do. Don't just say that's what you're doing, because if you do, that will undermine religious authority. But you better find a way to help this person and say what you have to in order to get that result. When rabbinic... Uh, literature talks about uh, these kinds of issues, and specifically when it when it puts them in the context of the Baskol, the the metaphor that God employs as a character in these in these interactions is interestingly enough not a marital metaphor, even though that metaphor is very common in rabbinic literature and in prophetic literature itself in the Bible. Actually, it is a filial metaphor, and God refers to Israel in those contexts and the Jewish people in those contexts as banai, as my children. And I, I think that that prompts us to understand the, the, the process underway here as one of a, a child maturing and growing up and eventually having to move out of the house and having to take care of oneself. And there's something both like the translational project, 
profoundly exciting about that and profoundly frightening. And just as a, as as someone who moved out of my parents' house myself and built a you know built a family, thank God. Um, I'm still not sure how I feel about it, you know. And even now, it's you know my 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 wife and I. I mean, please God, have have been married almost 16 years, and I still am not sure how I feel about living apart from my parents. So um, there there is this push and pull in the Jewish tradition between uh, between the 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 nobility of living on one's own and making one's own decisions and and in fact being able to 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 glorify the legacy of your parents and enrich it and enlarge it and substantiate it by being the kind of person that your parents always hoped you would be uh there's something there's something um heartwarming about that and and i think um and i think even even courageous about it and at the same time uh, there's there's this need to remember that connection. Sometimes to go back and visit your parents for Shabbos, and there's you can see I think w- within the stories itself about you know rabbinic struggles over how much or even whether to to credit the Baskol uh, with any authority whatsoever, you can see that very tension. You pointed to it yourself, right? The, the capper of the story is the, is the rabbis relying on God to permit this relationship, this, the severing of those ties in some way to occur. And so I, I think if you want to take a macro view of, of Jewish history, it's, it's a push and pull between those two, between those two instincts. And you've seen it by the way, even, you know, outside of the Jewish story proper, you've seen that since you've seen that since the very first chapter of Genesis, right? So, and I've, I've, I've done a whole thread about this. There is in the Adam and Eve story itself, both a measure of catastrophe and a measure of redemption. It, it seems abundantly clear if you read the text very carefully that God never intended uh, for his human creations to remain, uh, to remain in this sort of uh, AI-enhanced uh, paradise forever, and yet it is also a tragedy when they have to leave. Much like you would, you know, you would never want your children to remain toddlers for the rest of their lives. You want to see them grow up, but there's also something that that rips you apart when your children grow up and don't need you the same way they needed you when you were an infant. I was just picturing Adam uh, having just left the Garden of Eden saying, I will not live in the pod. I will not eat the bugs. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Mm. Impotent-based Adam. (laughs) I think think of um, the principal agent problem, which is sort of the structural issue of broken telephone. It's the structural issue of the messenger in the best case scenario not even knowing how to honor the message that he's been given. Um, in the worst case scenario, the, the, the agent can rebel and say, you know, I don't like this mission and I'm going to do whatever I want because I have the, the king's signet ring. But I don't, you know, when God says my children have defeated me, I'm not sure how much it is really us taking the signet ring and stamping whatever it is that we want in the name of God. Versus more of the, you have to make a decision right now, 
and you don't get to call a friend and uh, figure out what the intent is. So you do the best that you can. But I'm curious, like sort of how do you relate to those two different archetypes throughout the rabbinic self-conception? Are we rebels or are we just, you know, we, we have to act in God's behalf and we don't really know what God would want. We have to balance the letter of the law. Um, which is God said do X with the more consequentialist uh, ramifications of doing that, which were like, well, God definitely doesn't want that outcome, right? Like God doesn't want that woman to live a life of sorrow and aloneness. So even if the letter of the law, you know, would, would make it so that the testimony isn't sufficient, like we're going to have to figure out a way to bend that. It's like, William Blake said about John Milton that he was of the devil's party without knowing it, right? So I think there's a there's a great way anybody who anybody who takes Satan seriously uh, will will if they're doing their job correctly make extremely plausible and convincing sounding arguments on Satan's behalf because otherwise you're just uh, otherwise you're just a little you're just a poor cartoon and. Therefore, it seems to me that there should be, or there should have to be, a really convincing uh, but false case for just like severing our connections to God entirely. And the best version of that that I've seen, or at least the best take on it that I've seen, is in the Brothers Karamazov uh, with the the kind of the parable of the Grand Inquisitor, where. Uh, uh, yeah, where Dostoevsky sets up, or rather, uh, where 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 the character sets up this uh, this um, this scenario where Jesus has come back and he's preaching to the people and he's performing miracles and he's dispensing wisdom, and when the Inquisition gets you know gets wind of this, they arrest him and they throw him in the dungeon. And then the Grand Inquisitor shows, just to make a long story short, you know, I guess no spoilers, but this work has been around for a while. So the, the Grand Inquisitor shows up and and Jesus, assuming that, you know, there must have been some, some misunderstanding. How could they, you know, they must have assumed that this is somebody masquerading as Jesus or parading around like a charlatan. And the Grand Inquisitor comes up and Jesus says, just, you know, so, you know I'm really your Lord and Savior. And the Grand Inquisitor says, I know, but your time is over. And leaves them to rot in the dungeons. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a brutal take on clericalism, but I think what it also is, is a, is, is something that should frighten anybody who takes the rabbinic, uh, reduction of the Boscol's authority seriously, which is, is that what we're doing to God? Are we saying, listen, listen, God, we, you know, you had your time to preach and now it's our turn, right? That I think is how, that I think is how, is how, the Satan would read that that rabbinic text and say, "Yes, uh, we we're done with God, right? We're on the same team. We're we're done with God, and that's and that's what we've that's that's what we've now accomplished. We've expelled God from from our uh, from our earthly paradise. And I think, in fact, uh, what's going on is something that is similar to that, but also subtly but crucially different. And that is." Um, what we're actually, what the rabbis are actually reflecting to God, back to God, in that uh, in that dialogue. Which, by the way, just to set the stage for for listeners who might be unfamiliar, the the argument there 
begins with what you might assume is just some like esoteric piece of, uh, but, but, but also important and fascinating piece of rabbinic law, which is what happens, um, what happens when you have a, 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 uh, an earthen vessel, right? A pottery vessel, uh, that absorbs a prohibited substance into it, right? So like you've cooked a prohibited substance into it. So normally the rule is that you cannot, uh, unlike a metal utensil, for example, you can't cleanse a, a pottery utensil that's been made, in, that's been made uh, unclean. Uh, and in, in fact, the only way to, to clean it or to, to make it, uh, or to make it usable again is to shatter it and essentially destroy and destroy it irreparably. And so, uh, you know, rabbinic literature records that there was one potter who came up with this, uh, incomprehensible, uh, new invention, a room temperature superconductor that he built in his room that was actually able to, <laughs> that was actually able to take broken shards of pottery and somehow like metal reforge them into a, into the old earthenware jug that you had. And so the question would be, well, is that jug now usable or right? Because you shattered it and that was the way to cleanse it. Uh, so do we say that the, that in order to use the jug again, you merely have to shatter it. And after you shatter it, you can remake it and use it as you did before. Or do we say, no, the purpose of the law is to say that that jug can never be used ever again. So shattering it is not the technical action you have to employ. And then you can do whatever you want afterwards. Shattering is another way of saying this act is final, right? So the, the majority of the, of the rabbinic, uh, of the rabbinic thinkers and leaders take one perspective and one of the rabbis uh rabbi eliezer takes the other perspective and they're going back and forth back and forth and uh uh although the rule in, in rabbinic tradition is that we follow the majority and so rabbi eliezer notwithstanding the the strength of his convictions had to concede but rabbi eliezer refuses to concede and he says uh you know if I'm correct, God will perform miracles on my behalf and God duly performs those miracles. If I'm right, you know, the walls of this study house that we're occupying right now will collapse upon themselves. And that's exactly what happens. And, and eventually, um, after some intense back and forth, Rabbi Eliezer says, God himself is going to validate my position. And immediately the text portrays a Baskol emerging that says, why are you arguing with my, with my son, Rabbi Eliezer? And the implication being, of course, he's right. Now, the interesting, interesting thing, by the way, is that no one ever points to this part of the text, which is that the Baskol actually never says that Rabbi Eliezer is right. It just says, why are you arguing with him? Um, but leaving that aside for now, um, the, the, you know, God himself has endorsed Rabbi Eliezer's position. And that's when Rabbi Joshua strides forth and says, and he, and he cites the verse from the Bible, uh, my, 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 my law is not in heaven. It's not, it's, it's not in heaven and it's not across the sea. It's not so far away from you that you can't access it. The verse, the point of the verse being that, uh, that the Bible is actually accessible to anybody, but, uh, what he, playfully does with the verse as he says yes the the law is no longer in heaven it's been given to us here on earth and it's our responsibility therefore to uh um to to explicate it and it's not the implication then being it's not god's responsibility to make decisions for us and i think you could read that as humans rejecting the role of god 
uh, in in interpretation, you would rightly point out that the the tension there is that the story ends by having God Himself confirm that that Rabbi Joshua and the rest of the rabbis are correct to reject the Baskel. Um, I think a more subtle reading of the story is that Rabbi Joshua, and you know, this might be kind of like a you know. A con- like a Kantian analysis of the story, m- much as 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 Kant would read uh, the Binding of Isaac, the Akedah, um, Rabbi Joshua correctly intuits that God does not want his children to operate as slaves to his will. It uh, let me rephrase that. He does want that. In fact, the Bible says that often. Uh, but rather in the specific venue of interpretation of God's of and study of God's law and God's will and God's words, which is the most sacred task within the Jewish tradition. Um, um, in fact, there's, there's a, a wonderful rabbinic tradition that says that the study of the study of Torah is equivalent to, you know, all of the most uh, quintessential acts of actually performing the Torah. So specifically in that realm, in the realm of Talmud Torah, in the realm of studying and interpreting and deciphering God's word, it's precisely there that God doesn't want slaves and doesn't and doesn't want automatons. God wants partners and God wants active free agents. And Rabbi Eliezer, in in attempting to in attempting to negate that, was both misunderstanding what God wanted from us and also even trying to reverse engineer the process into by, by Rabbi Eliezer was trying to make God into the automaton into the rubber stamp and it's precisely those two things that God doesn't want God doesn't want us to be to be robots and God himself of course can't be the robot um and so what the rabbis are intuiting is is the process of decision making needs to be one of partnership and partnership always requires agency on behalf, uh, on the part of both partners. Now, God as agent is something as free, you know, as free agent as as being with with free will is something we can all easily comprehend. But it's it's precisely in imagining and and in fact uh, uh, manifesting human beings as free agent that we have the most difficulty with, and even to this day we have difficulty with. And so that's precisely where the rabbis insist on on preserving the human the human stake. So granted that Satan is in the Tyler Cowen game underrated, um, <laughs> like deeply. <laughs> how do we, how do we hold on to the positive value of partnership that you and free agency that you articulately championed? How do we do that without doing it as satanic? Without sort of, I, I still feel unclear as to how we know whether we're being ingenious little devils um, or whether we're being super dignified. Um, and rising up to God's call to be sort of co-equals in creating something. There's a classic question in the biblical tradition and the Jewish intellectual, and it, and it, it's, 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 it is, it is wrestled with both in the Christian tradition. And I believe though, I have less expertise here though. I understand from, from, you know, friends and colleagues that it's in the Islamic tradition as well, but certainly in the Jewish tradition, uh, why is Abraham chosen or why are Abraham and Sarah chosen by God? Infamously, 
the Bible never once explains this. Like we get this whole human story and it's, and it's deliberately presented as failure after failure after failure. Adam and Eve disobey God. Cain kills his brother. The entire generation of the flood just kind of throws up their hands and in, in, in wanton chaos. And finally we get to Genesis 12 and God says to Abraham, go. And Abraham does. And what the Bible never explains is why Abraham, unlike Adam, Abraham is not like a, a you know, synecdoche for the entire human race. He's not some sort of like human archetype like Adam is, or, or frankly, like Noah is. Abraham is just some random dude from the backwaters of Mesopotamia, and he's not an archetype for anybody. Like Abraham and Sarah are just like a bunch of guys. And so why Abraham? The Bible infamously never gives a reason, ever. Nowhere, and you could look high and low in the Bible and you never find it. And uh, what rabbinic tradition often does is, uh, and on, on any question like this, is it tries to fill in the blanks of scripture. And here is one of the most famous places it tries to do that. So rabbinic literature just offers, you know, reason after reason after reason like this might be the reason why god chose abraham and of course none of them are the reason and 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 the rabbis are doing that deliberately but one really fascinating tradition that attempts to answer that question proposes a a kind of a legendary scene which is uh it has uh god show abraham a vision of a burning building and Abraham looks at the building and says, where is the owner? And uh, rather, Abraham looks at the building and says, why is it on fire? And God says, well, uh, you know, the owners let it be on. You know, the owner has, has kind of let it catch on fire. Um, I, think and, he, I think Abraham says, where's the superintendent? Right, right. Where's it? Right. Abraham says, and God the says, God says, I am the owner, which like on the rabbinic right, interpretation the, right. is that like God didn't say I'm the superintendent, the implication right. being you're the superintendent. Like, but either way, the point, right, the point, <laughs> right, right, exactly. But the point is that the way the story culminates, right. So it's right. That's what it is. Right. Abraham says, right. Abraham says, where's the owner? God says, God, where's the superintendent? God says, I'm the owner. And the way it culminates, and this is the key, is that is that Abraham says, well, why don't you come and put it out? And God says to Abraham, well, you go put it out. And that is, and to me, this, and the story doesn't resolve, like the fire doesn't get put out in the story. And that's the most important part of it, which is, um, to me, what that story illustrates on the one hand, in answering the question of Abraham's chosenness, is that Abraham is the first person to wonder about cause and effect, and at the same time to acknowledge, well, for, uh, the other way around, Abraham is the first person to acknowledge the problem of suffering, but also maintain his faith in in first causes, right? So typically in, in the human story, you have people who are deeply attuned to the question of suffering, and that leads them to reject uh, any notion of a first cause or a benevolent first cause. Or you have people who are so convicted by the idea of a benevolent first cause that they can't abide the existence of suffering. So it all needs to be reinterpreted away as not real suffering, um, as either you deserve it or this is really good for you or it's an illusion. And Abraham is the first person to embrace, no, that this actually is real suffering. 
and uh, and also be be deeply unshakably convinced that there is a that there is a benevolent interested involved god behind all of this and those two things would seem to be intention so to me the way i would actually sum up abraham's chosenness or the reason for his chosenness is this abraham is the first person and since then one of the only people to be okay asking the question and then leaving the question unanswered and being able to proceed nevertheless. And so if I bring it back around to the question of, you know, what to your question of what makes that partnership between God and humanity real, what makes it possible, what's the model that it operates on? I think it's that which is you have to be okay with asking deep and important questions and having at least some of them go unanswered and yet not allowing that to ruin the entire endeavor. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do. Would you say Satan then is forcing the answer or not asking the question or both like yeah what, what is satan then just like uh so if we do, if we're defining partnership in a, in a way as to preclude satan then what does it teach us about satan? yeah so i so what blake meant about you know milton satan is he was referring to actually a specific thing that milton does in his work which is milton uh uh, Milton was fam most famous for Paradise Lost now, but in, at the time, Milton was most famous as uh, the greatest advocate for and defender of republics and Republican theory. And uh, the arguments that Milton made in particular were derived from his reading of scripture and his, and particularly others, colleagues of his, close reading of rabbinic literature. Specifically, um, the classic question of the tension between the book of Deuteronomy and the book of and the first book of Samuel. Book of Deuteronomy says um uh says seems to give license to the Israelites to ask for a king. It doesn't explicitly encourage it, but it does give license for it and it says if you ask for a king, you know, here here are the restrictions on a king. And then the book of Samuel when the Israelites actually ask for a king, um using the exact same language that the book of Deuteronomy uses Samuel castigates the people for asking for a king and God himself castigates the, the, the people for asking for a king and essentially accuses them of rejecting God by having asked for a king. So which is it? Deuteronomy, you can have a king or Samuel, you can't have a king and doing so is idolatrous. Um, typically, uh, you know, sort of medieval exegesis uh, in the, in the Christian tradition had sort of tried to find ways to reconcile the text or harmonize them in such a way that that made it possible for uh, kingship to be good, but for the request for kingship to have been phrased improperly, et cetera, et cetera. And that was just sort of like how, and since, you know, medieval politics didn't really rely on, on the Hebrew Bible anyway, it was all just like Aristotelian just constitutionalism. It kind of like wasn't a big deal. Uh, along comes the, uh, along comes uh, enlightenment humanism 
and there, you know, uh, you know, and Erasmus and Reuchlin and eventually Martin Luther and the Reformation. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, European political thought is obsessed with interpreting the Bible. And, uh, this is when, uh, sort of Christian Hebraists are are looking back into the deep distant past, trying to find uh, authentic interpretations of the Bible that haven't been corrupted by the Roman church. And that's when they discover Jewish literature and rabbinic literature in particular and become obsessed with it. And so European politics is dominated by, by rabbinic learn by Christian rabbinic learning and scholarship for about like 200 years. It's a pretty amazing time in history. And uh, what Milton and the Republican theorists do uh, is it emerges entirely from reflection upon the Jewish tradition. And what it says specifically is it actually refers to a rabbinic tradition in the rabbinic commentary on Deuteronomy. And uh, what it says is, if you want to understand how we get from Deuteronomy to the first book of Samuel, it's pretty simple. The Israelites were never supposed to ask for a king. Uh, and in fact, asking for a human king is an act of idolatry. It's an act of rejection of God. But humans are frail and and we fail over and over again. And God understood that that uh, his people uh, would err in this respect as they would in so many other respects, both in the in the private and political realms. And therefore, uh, what Deuteronomy does is it doesn't say you have to have a king. It says if you do have a king, here are all the restrictions that that it, that must attend it. And then uh, 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 when once when First Samuel comes along and the Israelites actually ask for a king, God of course gets upset. You weren't supposed to ask for it. And so the rabbinic reading of kingship is um, you were never supposed to ask for a king, and uh, and if you do ask for one, you'll be punished. And your punishment will be that you get exactly what you ask for. Now, Milton and the Republican theorists uh, sort of run with that. And they describe kingship, human kingship, as idolatrous. And this becomes deeply influential upon uh, a whole generation of writers, in particular Thomas Paine, who incorporates it wholesale into common sense, which sparks the American Revolution. John Adams later, because he he looked down on Paine as like a commoner uh, who was who was you know posing as an intellectual, and he accused uh, Paine of having lifted his argument wholesale from Milton's reading of rabbinic literature, and Paine gleefully admits that that's exactly what he did. Um, and so you could fairly say that the rabbis invented the American revolution, but nevertheless, uh, all the arguments that Milton makes on behalf of Republicanism, namely that submission to a King is, 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 is a surrendering of freedom. Uh, you don't have a, we have no moral responsibility to, to act loyally and faithfully, uh, towards tyrants. In fact, uh, it's meritorious to lie to a tyrant, just like Moses lied to Pharaoh, um, all of those very same arguments, when you get to Paradise Lost, Milton puts in the mouth of Satan. And those are the exact arguments Satan makes against God, the king, uh, you know, the king of kings. And so that's where Blake kind of quipped that, that, that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. But in reality, I think that what, what Milton's doing there is actually demonstrating a very powerful truth, which is that all the arguments that we make on behalf of liberty and republicanism are good and true and virtuous. Uh, and yet, if we directed them towards God, they would immediately become idolatrous and evil. And that 
to me, bespeaks a a thinker who understands uh, both the the virtue and the limits of inquiry. And so, I think what what we have then is uh, to to bring it back around to your to your question. What we have then is this is this phenomenon where we are both uh, required to ask questions. And in fact, God demands of us that we ask questions and also demands of us uh, that we somehow intuit precisely when uh, those questions no longer become productive. And that's such a difficult thing, almost an impossible thing to carry off. And yet that's what we've been charged with doing. Or maybe it's the difference between a question that is a humble inquiry uh, with a genuine openness to what will emerge and the kind of pointed weaponized questioning where you're almost cross-examining or interrogating, but the question is attempting to flex. It isn't just, tell me more. I'm so curious. Um, yeah. The other, the other point. In but that, but saying, by the way, that's yeah. like, that's what say, I think just again, to, to put a, to put a bow on your, your original question. I think that's what Satan is, right? Satan is, Satan is weaponizing our, our, not our worst instincts, which I think is the popular version of, of, of that. I mean, may, that may be part of that's, that is part of what evil is also, but just like rabbinic tradition has this wonderful idea that, that all of our, that, that every one of the worst sins has a virtuous corollary. Um, right. So, so murder, uh, murder's virtuous corollary is ritual slaughter of, of animals, right? Butchery basically. Um, you know, so, uh, I think that that Satan's most obvious and kind of, you know, like a uh, basic Satan is, uh, or the starter package for Satan is weaponizing our worst instincts. But but the the more advanced version, like the like the eight dollar the eight dollar a month version of Satan is Satan weaponizing our best instincts. Yeah, my head is spinning from that. Um... I'm thinking about Satan in the Bible, Satan in the book of Job, and what we're supposed to learn about that, about the meaning of Satan from that text in light of everything that we're saying. What, what's your take on Job? Satan. Now, bear in mind as background, I suppose, listeners, that that Satan in the Hebrew Bible is not uh, is not the, the great serpent of the great serpent of the book of Revelation. Um the book of revelation is doing some really fascinating stuff also. Uh, but, but, but Satan, as you encounter, as you encounter him in the Hebrew Bible is what, uh, you know, the, in the Israel defense forces would be called the Jobnik, right? Like someone who's just like, you know, washing dishes or manning a counter or just kind of like doing a job to get through service. Um, and you know, so Satan's performing a function there and it's a vital function, right? Satan's the prosecutor of humanity and humanity requires that in order to, to function, right? Like we need somebody to criticize us, even though we, we, we want him to fail over and over again, but it's important for him to be there. If you were, if we were just a job, Nick, you may not be so impactful. Like, are you so sure he's a back office worker? I'm thinking, yeah, I know. I'm thinking, I'm thinking Satan is a board member. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, it's God a good hired point. him to be the red team, so to say. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. It's a good point. All right. The question is like, does, 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 does Satan in the Hebrew, does the, does the Satan, right? Cause Satan just means like the, the, uh, uh, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Accuser. The or, accuser, right. Yeah. Or the, ad, like the, the adversary. the adversary, but not in the sense of like the, the capital E enemy, but rather a- adversary with the, 
the kind of the older English meaning of of a uh, person who's advocating against you in court. Um, the 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 Satan. The question is, does the Satan enjoy his work? And that's kind of a mystery. We don't hear about that anywhere in the Bible, and I, I wonder about that. Right? Um, He's an influencer telling everyone to do what you love. He's like, I just, you know, I love, <laughs> I love being the devil's advocate. It's it just comes uh, very naturally to me. <laughs> by the way, by the way, like speaking of speaking, like have you ever seen the Pacino Devil's Advocate with like Pacino and Keanu Reeves? It is a bonkers, absolutely bonkers movie. It's not, it's not a good movie per se, but it is a, in a it is like an effective movie. By the way, the de- the the devil, like Pacino plays the devil in that movie. Spoiler alert. Uh, I mean, it's an, it's been out. Like if you haven't seen it, it's, it's been out for a while. Um, Pacino plays the devil in that movie and his name is John Milton. Um, the, the devil gives, so Pacino gives this like unhinged speech at the end of the movie where he describes God as an absentee landlord. Um, which goes back to the, to the source with Abraham, but he gives this like really compelling argument you know this this kind of compelling soliloquy at the end of the movie and god does not answer right that and then the movie kind of like ends with keanu doing keanu reeves stuff but like that part is not super interesting um and you get a real sense from pacino from pacino's performance that that the the devil loves his job and part of why he loves his job is because is because what's driving it all is this deep resentment towards God for being bad at his job. And that's like a particularly, you know, like Western uh, revelation influenced view of Satan. But I don't think that's what you get in Job. What you get in, what you get in Job is a Satan who, who is, who is effective, right? Who's, who's good at his job. And the the funny thing about Job is that you have to wonder, you know, there, there is an opinion, you know, the rabbis in the Talmud have an argument about when Job takes place because kind of infamously, there is no, Job provides, the book of Job provides absolutely zero information that can be used to date it, both chronographical, chronological, linguistic, or like Job provides no information for how to date the book. Um, and so not only it's not, you know, it's not merely modern, you know, biblical historians who argue about when biblical books are dated. The rabbis argued about this as well. And in the Talmud, um, there, there are various opinions about when Job took place, but there's one opinion, which I believe is attributed to Rava, uh, who says, uh, uh, which means the book of Job never happened. It's actually just a parable. And the reason to, to the reason to me that's important is because once you once you embrace once you embrace the darkness, as it were, right? Like the idea that this actually is just a fever dream, you start to wonder: is this like a Kurosawa deal where where actually the book itself is an unreliable narrator? Like how like, is this what Satan actually said to God? Because the conclusion of the book kind of hints at that, which is God tells Job, like, mind your own business. Like, who do you think you are? Right. And f- as a reader, you can say, well, wait a minute. Why is God telling Job that he doesn't understand God's ways and he doesn't understand how the world works and, and how could he possibly comprehend the whirlwind, et cetera? We know what happened. We know what Satan said to God, right? Like, we know that that he's just playing a game here. 
And to me, that that is very suggestive of the fact that even even the Bible sometimes we, we have to read with a hermeneutic of suspicion. And that's such a such a te- like all of Jewish intellectual tradition is premised on that very idea that we have to read suspiciously. And I'll I just I'll, I'll give you like one quick thing. My my grandfather of of, of blessed memory, uh, who was my my teacher and a great rabbinic thinker, um, his grandfather, who was his teacher. Uh, who was the the youngest Rosh Hashiva of Vizhnit. So he was the the a great sage of one of the Hasidic uh, traditions and was a, a rabbinic decisor in his own right in America of of, of great renown. Um, so my grandfather in in one of his works describes you know the two great teachers that he had his grandfather and Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, one of the preeminent 20th century Orthodox Jewish theologians. Uh, when he's describing his relationship with his grandfather, the story that he tells about him that illustrates his greatness is that he uh, was studying. My grandfather was studying together with his grandfather um, a a section of the Talmud, and the way the Talmud is structured for those you know who are who are you know initiates is that when you look at a page of Talmud, there is the the text of the Talmud in the middle, and then the sides are what you know in the Latin tradition you'd call the glossators, right? So you have. Uh, one medieval commentary, the commentary of Rashi on the other side, and then the commentary of the Tosafists, who are by and large Rashi's descendants and students and disciples and disciples of disciples, etc. You know, in 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 France, the Rhineland, even even England a little bit, uh, who are enlarging upon Rashi's work and then doing their own thing. So my grandfather was assigned by his grandfather to to read one of the commentaries of the Tosafists, and the commentary cites. Uh, Rashi, the earlier commentator, and uh, uh, my grandfather recounts that his grandfather asked him, so what does Rashi say? And my grandfather said, what do you mean, what does Rashi say? The Tosavist just told us what Rashi said, and his grandfather asked him, well, how do you know he's telling the truth? And my grandfather said, it's the Tosavist. They're like the holiest people. We rely on them for everything. And his grandfather says to him, and he recounts it in Hebrew, he says, don't be lazy. Uh, don't be lazy. You can never trust anybody, right? Get up, look at Rashi, read his commentary, and see if the Tosavists have cited him accurately. And then he concludes by giving him a lesson. He says, when it comes to faith in God, you have to have perfect faith. When it comes to studying God's word, you have to have perfect suspicion. And to me, that's the that's the, <laughs> the task here. How do I know that story is true, Ari? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, so the other reason why I think Milton puts great arguments in Satan's mouth, um, just bringing it more to the contemporary experience, but I'm sure this is an evergreen phenomenon, is the the idea that a person can be right morally and still be a jerk um, who's motivated largely for egotistical, carpet-bagging, opportunistic reasons, um, either in, in um, rather than for pure reasons or perhaps more accurately in addition to those pure reasons. You often find, um, I think, ab- amongst people with a sense of righteous rage that um, righteous as the anger may be, there's a lot going on besides <laughs> the righteousness in that anger. Yeah. <laughs> um, doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to them or try to action what they're saying, but I do think it, it really complicates things because uh, if from a purely logical point of view, the only thing that matters is the substance of the argument, but we are sort of ad hominem creatures and 
rhetoric enshrines the idea of ethos and pathos, which which means that the credibility of the speech hinges on the messenger who delivers it, not just on the message. I am I am more sympathetic than than I suppose people might assume to ad hominem arguments. Like I think we've I think we sometimes let me rephrase. I think your average person gives too way too much credence to add, to ad hominem arguments, but your average like intellectual, I guess, gives way too little credence to ad hominem arguments. And actually, there is something to the fact there 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 is something to the notion rather that uh, if the person making uh, arguments is just a deeply terrible person, that actually should that actually should sway you towards that person being wrong. Um. And because if, if, yeah, I, that's where I disagree. I think, I think it should sway you towards they're right, but beware of the moral consequences of holding that right opinion because there may be more to a good life than just being right. By the way, that I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that as well. That that's, that's kind of a more elegant way of putting what I was saying. Um, and, and I, I, but I think, you know, the idea that, uh, now, Maimonides himself is the famous, famously the standard bearer of of the way, as he puts it, "Cabela's MS Mimi Shamaro, accept the truth from whoever says it." Um, and but there is this kind of like caricatured notion, this caricatured version of that, which is um, the virtue of the virtue of somebody bearing truth has no bearing on the the veracity of the of of this argument whatsoever. And I just I just think that's not a nonsense. And B, or at least nonsense to an extent, uh, and B, it, it would have been deeply in, unintuitive to to um, the vast majority of people who form the basis for the Western intellectual tradition, like at least at least the Jerusalem half of Jerusalem and, and Athens, you know, two thousand years ago or, or longer. But either way. I think one good test case for this would be the Pharisees, right? So the Pharisees are uh, an ancient boogeyman. We actually don't have any texts written by anybody who describes themselves or is described by somebody within that text as a Pharisee, with one exception being and the exception being Paul's letters, uh, although at the time that he wrote them, he was no longer a Pharisee, right? So that's kind of the irony. But what we do have in antiquity is we have loads of people who hate the Pharisees writing about them. So the only things we know about the Pharisees from the Gospels, from Paul's letters, uh, and by the way, a rabbinic literature is an interesting case, right? Because people sometimes sort of, I think, like naively and wrongly just assume that the rabbis are are also Pharisees. Uh, the rabbis, there is no example in any rabbinic text of anybody ever referring to a rabbi as a Pharisee. So there's no like Rabbi X the Pharisee, like you might have so-and-so the Bethusian or so-and-so the Sadducee. You never have the, Rabbi X the Pharisee. Um, you, the rabbis do have a lot of sympathy for the Pharisees. Now, let me rephrase that. The rabbis accept the Pharisees' position uh, on every, uh, in any case where the Pharisees argue with somebody else, the rabbis always accept and defend the Pharisees' position. But they are not Pharisees themselves, or at least they don't ever describe themselves as such. And in fact, 
the one case where where the rabbis reflect on pharisaical behavior, to borrow a, an, an infelicitous phrase, they criticize it, right? So the rabbis say, don't be a, fa-. there, there is one text where, where the rabbis say, don't be a Pharisee. Um, the great 20th century uh, Talmudist uh, Saul Lieberman was so perturbed by that text that he amended it so that it wouldn't read Pharisee. It would mean something else. Um, but I think that in fact, what's going on here is that the Pharisees were precisely those uh, those figures who others found deeply unpleasant, didn't like them uh, for a variety of reasons. But you know, maybe some deserved, some not deserved, hard to know. Uh, what the rabbis are able to do is, is understand that even people who others or even you find unpleasant can also be bearers of truth and maybe even the most reliable bearers of truth. And so I think there's something instructive in the fact that the Pharisees are, are, are so influential upon the Jewish tradition. I, the, now is not the time for it, though, though I have kind of been tinkering around with a, you know, a major Twitter thread uh, explaining why, why I am a Pharisee and why I think the Pharisees are like the unsung heroes of the Western tradition. But I, I've, I haven't had the courage yet to press send. <laughs> je, je suis Pharisee. Exactly. Um, <laughs> this is not exactly analogous, but your, you know, your point that nobody says they're a Pharisee. I think, I think one interpretation might be because it's so obvious that you are, you don't, you know, I don't walk around sort of saying the parts of my identity that I, that I take to be self-evident. I would only do it if it, if it needed say, uh, or if I felt perhaps insecure about it and wanted to emphasize it. Um, So that, that's one possibility. But I was also thinking there's this structural grammatical point with the Musulman. Um, Do you know, have you heard of the Musulman? No. So the Musulman, which I think just means Muslim man, what um, is a sort of figure of Holocaust literature and folklore? Presumably, um, Holocaust survivors use the Musulman to contrast themselves with it. So, um, Primo, I think Primo Levi was the one who really went into this um, because he wrote in his autobiography, I was a Musulman. And um, Giorgio Gavin, in commenting on the, the book, says, you know, no, nobody in all of Holocaust literature says I am a Musulman. They are always talking about other people as Musulmaner, except for Primo Levi, the closest that we have is he says, I was one. So it's like he did a triat he, he He came back from being one. And, and that's the closest we'll get to this. Like Paul, so, I was a Pharisee. Exactly. <laughs> and the, so the Musulman was called a Muslim man because he was physically so hunched over that like in submission, let's say, that um, it was considered a person who had given up on life, who was alive, but because, and then this is the Agamben's interest in it was legally speaking, because they're like lo povo lo sham, they're they're neither here nor there. They actually get away with breaking certain laws in the concentration camps with impunity because it's as if they don't exist. So like if if a healthy person bumps into a Nazi soldier, He's shot for you know insubordination or whatever. But if a Muslim does, it's like the Nazi doesn't even feel the infringement on his pride. He just he doesn't even notice it. Um, and of course, we have no historical record of the Muslim because it's purely it's like a 
like a theological or literary concept, but presumably for people who survived, it was highly important because their ability to say, I am not that gave them a sense of I'm holding on to life. Even as you could argue that uh, without the Muslim they would have, they might've actually been in despair. I love the idea of querying what gets you through that degree of trauma. My favorite example, which I think fewer people, like many people within the Jewish community are aware of, but almost nobody outside is, um, is that one thing that happens is, uh, so whole institutions kind of like flee. It's less common. You know, it, it's not super common, but whole institutions of Jewish higher learning kind of like flee together. So the most famous example and the most moving one uh, is there's a there's a yeshiva called the Mira Yeshiva. So the, the yeshivas, like the great institutions of, of Jewish higher learning are called yeshivas. It's places where, uh, where you know, the Bible, rabbinic literature, all the medieval commentaries are, are studied at great depth all day long. Um, and they're often kind of colloquially called after uh, or, or, you know, popularly known after the places where they were. So there's the yeshiva in Volazhin, right? In the town of Volazhin, there's the yeshiva in the Mir, there's the yeshiva of Lublin, um, uh, etc. The Mir yeshiva kind of flees as an institution and they flee to Shanghai. And so you have the Mir yeshiva in Shanghai. So it's like this, you know, it's like this, this European town that pops up wholesale in the middle of China. And then they f eventually uh, make their way uh, to the branch in America and a branch in Israel. And so there's the idea, there's the idea of taking now these bear in mind, back in Europe, these are not Jewish towns. These are towns where Jews live. But I love the idea, uh, and I love the idea of 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 survivors of the Holocaust or people who who fled the Holocaust. Jews without an army, without a government, without a uh, uh, without a grand strategy, so to speak, basically capturing towns and moving them into other territories, and and um, in in essence absorbing their identity. Like who remembers the towns of of Mir or Volusian today? Um, other, m other than, or, or more acutely than the Jews who were forced to leave them, uh, who were driven out of them. To me, that is, is, is an, an extraordinary and remarkable and maybe unparalleled act of conquest. Like I can't think of an analogous example, although, although there, there yeah. may be. No, it's a great point. Like how many of my non-Jewish peers know the word Volusian? You know right. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's kind of fascinating. Like, like and though, um, you know, those Jewish towns are like, those Jewish towns are like Yiddish takes on what the actual names are, but like Ljubljana, right? Like meaning, meaning the town of Volusian, like who, what, what person outside of the people who actually live there, uh, uh, have ever heard that name before. Whereas in the Jewish community, it's like, uh, it's like talking about Shangri-La, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> you have said a couple times on your podcast that being a rabbi is one of the least interesting things about you. Um, I think I know what you mean. Um, in the sense that perhaps being a religious Orthodox Jew, there's a lot of 
like learning is so normalized, sagacity is so normalized that perhaps it, one doesn't stand out by having the, the label. Um, but I do see you as a rabbi, um, a teacher, and I do think um, it is an interesting thing about you, not maybe the generic aspect of it, the white, the white label aspect, but certainly the desire to teach tradition in our particular moment and do so to an audience and in a medium that is relatively atypical for um, for, for a rabbi, um, certainly for a from one. So yeah, I'd, I'd just love to hear why it's uninteresting. And then also, what does being a rabbi mean? Uh, what does being a rabbi mean to you? That's such a good, wow, what an awesome question. I think saying that being a rabbi is uninteresting to me is in some ways now that I'm now now that you're forcing me to reflect on it in in such an interesting way it might be a defense mechanism because I am bad at being everything that a rabbi is supposed to be and what I mean by that is that um a rabbi is not um, a rabbi. Historically speaking, was not synonymous with being wise or an intellectual or um, a sage or even, you know, like a jurisprudential authority. Rabbis were the people responsible for uh, for. Uh, shepherding a religious community, seeing to its various practical uh, needs. And it seems to me, therefore, that the ideal rabbi is not necessarily uh, the someone who is um, the most world, you know, the most renowned authority in his town or his region or whatever it is. It's somebody who has such an appetite and love for performing acts of kindness on behalf of others that they're willing to suffer the slings and arrows of a disaffected congregation uh, and, you know, and the indignities inflicted by lay councils, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think the, the part of, you know, I started my career like in the actual pulpit rabbinate, um, I've since I, I've since left it, um, you know, and that's not like uh, you know, it's you know, that's that's much more common than I think outsiders might assume. Uh, most people, in fact, at least in the uh, well, one thing that kind of the the some parts of the Orthodox world have done with the rabbinate that's interesting is um, uh, they have confused rabbinical study with just you know, regular run-of-the-mill Jewish higher learning that anybody should do, whether or not you want to be a rabbi. Um, and in in major parts of the Orthodox world, for example, most people who are spending years and years studying Jewish texts assiduously day and night aren't doing so because they're going to get a degree at the end. And in fact, almost none of them do. Um, but it, it seems to me that, that, you know, having left the pulpit... Um, one thing that I, I so admire about excellent pulpit rabbis, whether their pulpits are large or tiny and out of the way, 
is the best of them are just the most magnanimous people and empathetic people I've ever met in my entire life. And it's not exclusive to the rabbinate, but, but certainly, you know, excellent rabbis are just boundlessly empathetic people. And you have to be willing to just dedicate 24 hours of your day to that. And I found that uh, just, I couldn't measure up. Um, growing up, the rabbi of, of my community, Rabbi Yehuda Kellimer of Blessed Memory, was in addition to being just an incomprehensible sage. I mean, people from around the world would ask him questions of the highest level and deepest import. Um, you know, he could quote medieval, early modern, ancient sources off the top of his head by heart. I mean, at 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 the drop of a hat, had a you know an eidetic memory. Uh, I'm in addition to just Jewish texts. I mean, he could recite Lord Byron and Keats by heart. He knew all of Bob Dylan's songs by heart. I mean, he just was an incredible sage. But what made him a a superlative once every couple of generations rabbi was that you could call him at 4 a.m. without any worry that you would be disturbing his sleep because you knew that he would be up expecting people to call him asking a, a, a an emergency question about a loved one who was dying or about a marriage that was ending or about a a, a case of, of personal poverty or, or anything. And so when I, when I say that being a rabbi is uninteresting to me, like is the most uninteresting thing about me, it's mostly because the thing that makes being a rabbi interesting and not just interesting, but important and vital, I'm not, I'm not, I don't measure up. And so, you know, that, I think that's what I mean by that. If I really kind of wanted to plumb the depths of that. <laughs> that was very honest and enlightening. I had no idea. Um, the way you described a rabbi just now to me sounded almost like a saint. Um, I, I, I would use the word at Sadek. Um, and I totally agree that I don't measure up to that. <laughs> and I would say most <laughs> rabbis that I know don't. Like what um, we do is like parlor tricks, you know? <laughs> yeah. I know, I know it's great. Um, it's a great thing for a community I, right. to have a saint, so to say, but for whatever reason, and when I when I think of the rabbis of the Talmud, I don't think they were all shepherds of communities. I could be wrong. Um, I think many of them were intellectuals. They were like podcasters and bloggers, and like I think that's awesome. And and sort of let a thousand models of rabbi bloom. Like let's unbundle this thing so that people don't feel a sense of incompetence and not measuring up, but rather like those who have boundless empathy can sort of track their progress against that. And those who want to contribute to scholarship can, and, and of course, if you can combine these and do something, you know, unique at the intersection of three or four, like God bless, but I don't personally want to get too much into the business of, let's say, adjudicating a hierarchy of value where like the boundless empathy and being, you know, able to, to be called at 4am sort of, ranks higher or lower than something else. I mean, maybe it does rank higher and that's just a cop out, but like, I, I have to admit, like when you're talking about that, I'm just like, no way. And that's <laughs> nice that somebody like knew themselves well enough to make themselves available. And like, that's great. Masiba Nefesh, but like that can't be the model. Like that's profoundly unsustainable. And also that there's a violence to one's family. I think um, that there, there's a, there's a shadow side to that as well. So yeah, there I, might I think, be the, the, the best, <laughs> the, be, the best book that I never recommend to anybody 
uh, is called Sages and Commoners in Late Antique Eris Israel. It's by Stuart Miller, who's a professor at the time, was a professor at UConn. I think he still is. Um, it is an awesome book about uh, about uh, uh, sort of like second, third, fourth century Jewish intellectual history. It is exceedingly dense, very difficult to get through, but it is one of the most meticulous works of scholarship I've ever encountered in my life. It is so well done. Uh, one of the things that he demonstrates really conclusively is that um, uh, one of the most uh, influential forces or external forces on the development of the Jewish intellectual tradition is um, urban development. And what he means by that is that one of the most robust distinctions, like categorically, systematically robust distinctions that uh, rabbinic literature maintains between different sages is urban sages and rural sages. And uh, when it comes to question, and, and what that means is the following. Uh, when it comes to questions of decision making of rabbinic decision making only the only sages who ever are permitted to make decisions are the urban sages and anytime you have stories in rabbinic literature of of you know of figures who try to uh or, or who kind of get too big for their britches it's always rural sages who are too big for their britches now at the same time uh you might so you might conclude on that basis that, uh, you know, rabbinic literature has this kind of bias against rural sages, but nothing could be further from the truth. What he also demonstrates is that uh, rabbinic literature also por <laughs> simultaneously portrays the rural sages as uh, spiritually more advanced than all of the urban sages. They are, anytime you have stories about healing or, 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 inspiring biblical interpretation or miracle working all that stuff it's always it's always in the rural areas um and often at the expense of the urban sages uh, or at least sometimes at the expense of the urban sages and what emerges from that i think is just a very is rabbinic literature is making a very practical distinction right if you want if you're talking about the knowledge industry uh then you need economies of scale and those things really only exist in urban centers that can support large yeshivas and and study circles etc and all of those things were in tiberius and were in you know the larger cities in in the north of the land of israel uh but uh what but when it comes to acts of spiritual and and um kind of mysterious interpersonal ledger domain, those things uh, can take place anywhere and probably, and in some, and if you think about it and if we're honest with ourselves, are more likely to take, to take place uh, under conditions that don't require such rigid conformity as the urban centers. And so how does that shake out? Does that mean the urban sages are better than the rural sages or the rural sages better than the urban sages? And the answer is no, neither. None of them are better than the other ones, but it really depends what you're selecting for. And, and that's at the aggregate level. Now, at the individual level, it probably is probably is best for one to admit where one feels most comfortable and acknowledge that not feeling comfortable in the other circumstance might reflect a personal failing. Um, 
you know, I feel much more comfortable in the urban, you know, in the proverbial urban center, you know, I, I, I feel like I can thrive in the, you know, in the knowledge industry, you know, I am, I am a, I'm at least a semi-competent word cell and, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, that's why I feel at home on Twitter and, but I do feel, I do feel a responsibility and I don't, I frequently don't more often than not don't measure up to it, but at least I feel a responsibility to acknowledge that maybe being good at what I'm doing, or at least trying to be good at what, at what I'm doing, you know, even if it does some good for the world and I hope that it does, and I intend for it to, the fact that I'm doing good in that way and not another way might be because I'm afraid to try and do it the other way, or I wouldn't be good at it the other way. And, and, and what is it about me that makes me that way? Is it because, you know, is it because I, you know, you know, just God gave me certain talents and not others maybe, or is it because, um, I'm just not good enough to do the other things be- from, from, a from a motive. Like I just don't properly motivate myself. So at the, I think at the aggregate level, it's, it's actually important and good and vital to say what, what, what you said a moment ago, which is there are different ways of doing things. It's, there are lots of trade-offs and there are trade-offs, not just at the level of excellence, but at the level of family and love and things that go beyond the production of knowledge and the sustenance of communities, et cetera. There are trade-offs, and it's so important at the aggregate level to at the aggregate level to acknowledge that. But part of the beginning of wisdom is fear of God, as the the proverb has said. And so I think that at the individual level, we should all be we should all err much more on the side of acknowledging personal failings. I guess. <laughs> mm. I kind of I find it refreshing to let's say you know say it, it could be because I'm a failure. Like there's something super contrarian about that. So just like on aesthetic grounds, I'm in favor of it. Um, but it seems like kind of reverse virtue signaling, or at least at risk of it, unless it motivates. So if, if, if let's say acknowledging failure can be coupled with, okay, so I'm not going to wake up at 4am to take the emergency call, but what is like the 1% version of that, that I could incrementally like move on that. Then I think, okay, that's good. You actually had an awesome thread that I've read and reread a a bunch of times on effective altruism where, where, where you kind of analyze this, this argument, this line of argument in the context of a social movement that's trying to like, like (laughs) weaponize or, or like, you know, factory produce sainthood. And there's something both, you know, ludicrous about that, but also, you know, at the individual level, noble about it. What I took away from your thread on that, and everyone listening should go look it up. I'm sure you can, I'm sure you could use uh, X's search capabilities to find it. Um, But, (laughs) but um, what I took away from it was that Effective altruism, on the one hand, is kind of doing exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. They're trying to they're trying to to um, make that sort of extremist uh, uh, case for self doubt at the macro level, and then at the individual level, just excusing all sorts of of bad behaviors, right? Whereas what I'm saying is that at the individual level is where you need to have the most scrutiny, and then at the macro level, we should acknowledge trade offs. Um, so EA is just sort of like failing on all levels in that respect, but, (laughs) but, 
what I also took away from your thread was that at the individual level, we actually at purely at the individual level, like when you are alone in a room it, to use the rabbinic parlance, right in a room within a room within a room, uh, when you are alone with just your thoughts and God, you should worry that you're not, you know, on the margins, 1% more effectively altruistic. Or more percent. Yeah. Maybe just more like allocate a little bit more to impact. Like I don't, I definitely don't think you should be only thinking about impact that that would, I mean, if I did, I'd be, I guess, I guess going back to the Satan point, maybe that's cause I'm lazy. Right. Um, how do how do I how do I know if my resistance to effective altruism isn't just the Satan in me, you know, want, wanting to hide behind the screen of virtue ethics as opposed to like doing the uh, Monte Carlo models for my various <laughs> moral acts and calculating the expected value. Right. Um, I, I mean, listen. I think I, I don't know if you share this 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 thought, but I think I heard this from like I can't remember who said this. It might have been like Antonio Garcia Martinez, but it was like I also just don't trust these clowns to like calculate altruism effectively, <laughs> like calculate well, that, impact effectively. You know, <laughs> I I think oh right um, right you can calculate the yeah that's a good point. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about vegans earlier because you said every uh, every vice has its correlate virtue. And you gave us the example butchery as a virtue. <laughs> and I was just thinking as, a, like, as an, as an overweight person, I, I feel that very strongly. <laughs> I mean, I think right there, there's a, like, I was like, wow, every vegan listening to this just like died inside. Um, but there is something actually to that impasse, let's say, um, which is the Samuel point. And like, if we are fundamentally evil, then does effective altruism overestimate the extent to which we can be good um, or, or to the extent to which doing good can override our being not good versus the more, I think, conservative, like small c conservative view, which is sort of like granted that humans are limited. What can we do to be a little bit less terrible and to do damage control, knowing that like if we're not, um, careful, like our Satan is going to find a way to sort of take the wheel. The contemporary Jewish philosopher uh, or an Orthodox Jewish thinker, David Schatz, uh, has a wonderful article on freedom and repentance um, and the episode of Hardening Pharaoh's Heart. It's a great article. Everyone should read it. Uh, but it, and it you know, kind of gets into the weeds of medieval commentaries, but it's really good. On the very last page, I want to say, or second to last page, whatever it is, he has like a little throwaway line, which is that um, Pelagianism is no heresy in Judaism. And that's my favorite line. It's And it's in, literally in parentheses. It's like a parenthetical note. I'm like, yes, that's the best line of the article. Um, there, the, there, there is some approximation of like a doctrine of the fall in Judaism, but it's, 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 it's so di it's different enough from the the Christian notion as to just be fundamentally distinct, and and maybe at odds with it. Um, I think that that the Jewish spiritual theological tradition uh, acknowledges the the badness in man, um, and sometimes even kind of externalizes and personifies that badness as you know 
the Yetzer Hara, like the evil inclination, who's this sort of malevolent force that's that's contending with us at times. Um, but it also sees great heroism in humankind. Uh, and the point of the divine image that we all bear is that we can we can transcend uh, the the um, mortality that we've been shackled with. And what that allows us to do is two important or at the very least unusual things in the context of like Western morality, which is that uh, Judaism has a very easy time condemning people to like eternal punishment and irredeemability. So like Pharaoh or Hitler can never be redeemed like ever. And except in the Midrash where Pharaoh does do Teshua. Right. But, but <laughs> right. But there, right. Like there's, there's this, but first of all, we don't know what happens after that. Right. But at the end, uh, uh, but even, even in that case, the rabbis are like imagining a different Pharaoh than the one that we get in the Bible, right? And what, and they're doing it for, you know, didactic purposes and, and, and it's in service of the larger text there. Um, but Jewish tradition has no problem saying that, that, you know, some people are beyond redemption. Like if you're evil enough, you're beyond redemption. Uh, whereas, um, whereas others will have to, other traditions will just bite the bullet and say like, yeah, like Hitler, like God loves Hitler and will forgive him and, and Hitler will eventually be in paradise. And the other thing that this allows Judaism to claim is that in some way within certain parameters, like we can earn our, our redemption. Um, and humans can be worthy of being redeemed by God. And I think that that introduces both a degree of danger into Judaism that you might not find in, in other traditions. Um, like the stakes are so much higher if we can both win and lose. Um, and if, and if we can do that, you know, to some degree on our own. But it also introduces a, a degree of collective responsibility, which I also find interesting, which is because, and this is another element of the Jewish tradition, which is that it's less, it's, it's, it focuses less percentage wise on personal salvation, even though there is an element of that, but it focuses less percentage wise on personal salvation than, you know, than other kind of Abrahamic faiths and more on collective redemption of humanity, like the messianic age, right? The eschatology. Um, and that is the kind of thing that can't be achieved without groups, right? Without families, communities, societies, nations, uh, in international bodies. Well, I don't know, whatever the case may be. Um, like, like a better version of the UN would, would be working towards the salvation, you know, like the redemption of humankind by God. Right. But like the, so I think therefore that, you know, if we're thinking about, uh, if we're thinking about like the question of, of, how reliable is is 
humankind, I guess it, I guess, I guess my question back would be like, what's the, 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 what's the premise? Like if we're thinking about the flaws of, if we're thinking about what are the, what are the downstream effects of flawed human beings? I guess we have to ask ourselves first, like, well, how flawed are human beings? Like really how flawed are we? Like, are we, are we, are we are we really bad and like the best we can do is kind of like try to escape this all of this right or try to like you know find some gnostic way out of this or uh or is rousseau right and really we're all we're all good intrinsically and we've just been ruined by society or is it some kind of mixture or in between position and question is well what's the mixture and in between position and what are the downstream effects of that right I guess I'm an option C kind of guy. Um, maybe that's a Satan in me. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm gonna have no, to. No, me too. <laughs> now I'm gonna have to qualify it all with maybe that's the Satan in me. Um, saying that is also the Satan in me, of course. Um, I think so. T- good. Uh, are we good or evil? Um, I I feel that we are both at the same time. That the good is the evil, and the evil is the good, which. Um, which means that you cannot really structurally correct anything without introducing a new problem. So I, I, at the individual level, at the macro level, perhaps I think there is progress, but progress only in the material world um, and perhaps in uh, the political realm. But I'm not sure at the level of character if there's such a thing as progress. So I could spell it out. But basically, like the, the Midrash says that God said... Um, that he created humanity and he saw that it was very good. And what is very good? Uh, death and the evil inclination. Why is the evil inclination good? Because without it, we wouldn't build homes or have or reproduce, um, which I think, right, you could go under the hood of those comments and try to understand why that's the case. Um, but I think it essentially, like, there is some element of egotism involved in any production or reproduction. It isn't just fulfilling some biological need. Human beings have thumas, we have identities, and that's a good thing because it's part of our being created in the divine image. It's a very good thing. It's also the source of all conflict and all unhappiness and all suffering and all cruelty. Um, and so you don't you don't get to strip out the evil inclination and then have any of the good things. Like the, the meme is like, this is why you can't have any of the good things or whatever, right? But it's like, you also can't have any of the bad things either. And I, that that's Blake's point, the marriage of heaven and hell is like, it's not just that good and bad come together. It's that in some sense, like they are the same, which is a dangerous point, obviously. Like if you hit it too hard, it leads to nihilism and moral relativism. And I think that's where I just end up super Straussian a lot of the time. Like when you're talking, I'm just like, wow, I think I'm terribly Straussian right now because basically I'm like, you, you, I forget what you said, but I was like, yeah, I do agree with that conclusion. I just wouldn't say it out loud. Like, I think that, that you know, in rabbinics, we have the concept of like certain conversations can only be said in the presence of two, but not three or three, but not more than three. And some only in your own presence or in the presence of God. And like, I guess I just don't think truth is the highest value. I think it's one value amongst many. I'm not so confident that if we just said the truth, that society would be great. I think in some ways it'd be terrible. So we have to balance um, the search for truth with other needs. And like, that's why philosophers have always been held a little bit under suspicion. And that's why the urban sage and the rural sage have their 
you know, conflict because the guy who, um, who's super compassionate and the person who understands, um, human nature, like it's quite possible that if you <laughs> had a true view of human humanity, you'd be much more impatient and misanthropic. And so I don't think Judaism is like, and therefore be a pessimist. No, it's sort of saying, and therefore don't focus on it. Like create your own reality, give attention to the kinds of things that you want, that will help you build your character and don't give attention to other things that might turn toxic, but at the same time, intellectually, like there is no, dis- there is no way to refute those things. If I could achieve like one thing with like why read the Bible and Hebrew stuff, it would be exactly that. Meaning the, the Bibles, the premise of the Hebrew Bible is precisely that truth is a virtue, but also potentially a boring virtue, right? Like God created the world is the truth that I believe in, like for real believe in. Um, And it's also the very first verse of Genesis. And there's a whole Bible that comes after that. Like the most boring part of the the Bible's own perspective on itself is that like the least consequential part of, of the Bible is the truth part, right? Everything after that is relationships and love and trust. And if you ask, why do human be- why are human beings created with the capacity for evil? Why is the very good thing right the the mere the merely good part of humanity is the truth part, the part that God created human beings and therefore there's a first cause and we are you know and there's an unmoved mover, et cetera, et cetera. That's the good part. The very good part is that we have the capacity to do bad things and believe wrong things and be in error all the time. And why is that important? Well, the reason that's important is not because falsehood is somehow an equal virtue with truth. It's rather because there is another virtue beyond truth, which is relationship. God wants God. The God of the Bible is very much notwithstanding uh, attempts at rapprochement through the ages, which are very productive and and have stood us in good stead philosophically and traditionally speaking. Ultimately, it is not the case that the God of the philosophers and the God of the Bible is the same God. Um, the, the God of the Bible is a God who wants a relationship, uh, who is who is in, in were this not were this not something I'd be afraid to say, right? To borrow from rabbinic parlance, Lule Mustafina. Were I not terrified to say this, I would say that God is a very lonely being and wants a relationship with His creations. And the only way to have a true relationship is to have uh, two willing, free, you know, willing participants, free beings who are choosing each other. And um, my my teacher of blessed memory, by Jonathan Sachs, uh, who's uh, the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, had a wonderful answer to a classic question that every you know theologian gets asked, you know, has gotten asked since the the you know the mid twentieth century, which is how could God allow the Holocaust? Now he starts off the an- answering that question by saying, "Anyone who tells you they have an answer to that question is a fool." Um, but you know, if I had to hazard a a poor facsimile of an answer to that question i would say that if someone says god where were you during the holocaust god would say what do you mean where was i during the holocaust i told you thou shalt not kill i gave you that command where were you during the holocaust and the tension in in both sides of the question is it's the victims asking that of God. It's not the Nazis going to God and be like, where were you during the Holocaust? Right. Like that, by the way, that's such like a good, that'd be such like a macabre, you know, like SNL sketch of like, 
of like Goebbels being like, God, where was God during the Holocaust? This puts our whole theology into question. Um, but, but, but in a, in a, on a serious note, that gets at the relational element, which is that knowing that God exists, knowing everything true about God is, 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 I think, absolutely worthless without all of the other virtues that are, are intended by the Hebrew Bible to accompany that, which is love, trust, loyalty, friendship, and, and ultimately all the things that go under the rubric of a true uh, and vital relationship. And so um, I, I, all of that is to say I, I absolutely agree with your premise about truth is just one among the virtues. And I think the best, the best text that you could possibly read to reach that conclusion, I think is the Hebrew Bible. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation and keep doing the good work. My God, this is like the most fun I've had in ages. I love this, that your podcast is amazing and everybody should listen. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.